Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, the Digest Edition, a podcast brought to you by Yahoo Finance UK. You can watch a full version of this interview by heading over to yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. Joining me today is Mastercard's Anne Cairns. Anne began her career as a research scientist, becoming the first woman to work on UK offshore oil rigs. She went on to work in restructuring and finance and became Mastercard's first female vice chair in 2008. So Anne, welcome. Thank you very much, Liana. It's great to be here. Fantastic having you here, and you've got this amazing career that we're going to be talking about, but going right back to the beginning, um, really want to know how uh, your childhood shaped you. So essentially, your mum was a pharmacist assistant, mm -hmm. your father was a shoemaker, and they were also performers on the side. So, <laughs> That's right. So how did your parents influence you in the success that you've had in your career? Well, first of all, I mean, I grew up in a very small mining village in the northeast of England, and my parents um, never gave me the impression that I just couldn't do anything I wanted to do. They they made me feel very confident. Uh, my my mum sent me off to dancing class at six hours every Saturday, and um, and I taught me how to be a performer. She was a singer herself. My dad was a club comedian, and I actually think that being a stand-up comedian, you have to be pretty bright to string things together. Um, and actually having humor throughout your working life is very important. So they always were just super supportive parents. So how did you find your passion for math? Well, actually, I'm from a family of three kids. My elder brother's a mathematician and my younger sister did maths at university as well. Um, and I can actually remember lying in bed at night trying to get to sleep and sort of saying to, you know, my brother, oh, I can't sleep. And he's saying to me at the age of seven, well, calculate the number of seconds in a century and don't miss the leap years, otherwise I'll know. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, I thought this was an interesting thing to do. Um, so I think it was always there. So when you're growing up, and although you may have a passion in the subject, how, what did you study at university and how did you come about doing that? Well, I did study pure maths at university for my first degree, and then I did a master's in medical statistics. And I, you know, it just felt natural to me. I did maths, physics, and chemistry A-level. Um, and then I just applied to various universities. And I, I went to Sheffield for my first degree. And the reason was I was interviewed by this wonderful maths professor called Professor Mary Hart. And, um, and she was blonde and bubbly and wore bright red lipstick and beautiful clothes. And I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. <laughs> so I was very influenced then by great role models. But then from there, you went to work on an oil rig and you were the <laughs> first woman to do that. I mean, how did you come about to that decision? What 
made you go, right, that's what I'm going to do out of everything, measurable statistics, being a mass, maybe going into banking immediately, why jump onto an oil rig? <laughs> well, first of all, I became a research engineer at British Gas um, straight out of university because they wanted a statistician to come in and design experiments for all of the physicists and chemists and engineers. And I started to realize that I loved the whole engineering side, you know, predicting when pipes were going to burst or, you know, fracture under the ground, things like this. Um, and then after a few years, I suddenly thought, you know, this industry, the really cutting edge part, is the piece that actually gets the gas out of the North Sea, and I, I want to be at that cutting edge. So I actually rang the guy who ran offshore engineering, a guy called Bruce Goodwin, and, uh, and said I was interested in this. And he said, hmm, okay, come and have lunch with me and we'll discuss it. And so what's this about the helicopter underwater escape training or something? Because this sounds fascinating, but also I think when you talked about it before, that there was an element with a suit as well that really emphasised how the you know, field was very male-dominated. Oh, yes. Well, well, Bruce had said to me when I said I want to be an offshore engineer, he said, you do realise you have to pass your petroleum engineer certificate, your safety certificate. And I said well, what does that entail? And he said, well, it entails putting out kerosene fires and being thrown into the North Sea and escaping underwater from sunken helicopters. And I said, well, that's just the fun part. <laughs> so I, I think I went into it with that sort of attitude. When I did actually do the training, it was April uh, off the coast of Great Yarmouth. And the chap running it was an ex-Royal Marine. And I got very annoyed with him because he made me do everything first. There were 48 of us. There was 47 guys standing behind me. So day three, I said to him, I'm really annoyed that you're doing this. And he's, he pulled me to one side and said, quite a lot of people are terrified by some of these things. And if they see a little girl like you do at first, everybody's going to pass this course. So I thought, that's pretty interesting. But when they threw me into the North Sea, the suit they'd given me was the smallest size man suit. And I was about mm, three stone lighter at the time and had a pixie face. And so all of the water gushed into the back of my suit. In fact, I, I wouldn't have survived with that suit. So they had to make me a special one when they realized that it wasn't working. Even that part of your career is so fascinating. It sounds like, you, of course, it would come with challenges, but you thoroughly enjoyed it and you did pave the way for women um, working in that capacity. But then what made you jump into finance? It, it seems like actually, even though with maths being a basis, I'm mm -hmm. um, still a big leap to going it, into that. It is, absolutely. And I was about 30 at the time and I thought, oh, I, you know, I need to go and do an MBA or something like that. But then Citibank advertised in the Sunday Times and said they wanted people to come in who had been in industry and had managed people. Because often in banking, you do a lot of analysis when you're younger. You don't get the management experience you do as an engineer. Um, so I applied and that's how I ended up in banking. So with your career at Citibank, I mean, that's another male-dominated industry. Well, it was at the time yeah. in the investment bank. I joined the investment bank, yeah. And while they have made strides, it's still <laughs> predominantly um, male. But I think one of the standout things and learning about your career is that at Citibank, it's, it, it's sad that this still now would seem a surprise or shocking bit. You got a, a promotion mm -hmm. while you were on maternity leave. Yeah. So that, that's still 
sounds and feels very rare, but obviously it does create a prominence for how we think about maternity and having children. Can you talk about, you know, what happened there and, you know, how was that received? And of course, do you think that um, attitudes towards what maternity leave means, i.e. not a career step back, mm -hmm. um, what it means for women in the workplace now? I think that's a great question. And I was 37 by the time that I, um, I had my daughter. And I had moved to the corporate bank and I was running a big sales team across the corporate bank. And I realized that I didn't want to come back into the same job because it was just far too much travel. Um, I had a, a great boss at the time. And uh, actually, I wrote a letter to the head of personnel at City at the time because I was the major wage earner. My husband's a school teacher. And uh, interest rates were about 15%. So you can imagine paying the mortgage. I had to save up to, in order to have uh, Sophie, my daughter. Um, and I wrote a letter to HR just before I left saying, you do realize that after six weeks, I get 49 pounds a week. And it's so difficult for women to go on maternity leave. Um, and I hope that the future is better than this experience that I'm having now. My husband found the letter the other day. We both looked at it and went, I'm so glad I did that, hope you, you know, 25 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> but the truth was, after 12 weeks, my boss rang me up and said, when are you coming back? And I said, oh, another three weeks. And he said, do you think you can come back next week? Because, you know, I've decided to promote you. And, you know, I know you don't want to be on the road all the time, but I'm going to elevate your position to be basically the boss of the job that I left. Um, and the sales head would report to me and I would be running the business. Um, and it was just wonderful. I, you know, I said, are you sure? And he said, of course I'm sure, you know, and that's how I came back to work. But um, certainly at MasterCard, what we've done is we've said minimum of four months maternity leave everywhere in the world and two months paternity leave. And by the way, the great thing is the guys are taking the paternity leave. And I think that reflects culture saying it's OK to be a dad and a parent. And the more that happens, the better it is for the women, both because they have their partner at home helping them, um, but also because, you know, it starts to level the playing field at work. You've been a fixer throughout most of your career, and especially during um, the restructuring of Lehman Brothers, which was obviously a very tough time for you know the industry, but also as a challenge in you know anyone's career or their job, right? So, when it comes to that, what's your advice for those trying to keep a cool head in situations like that? And of course, you know, especially in a situation where it's fraught with the human fallout, because it wasn't just about the bank and the company, it's tens of thousands of people that lost their jobs. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that human element into it, because actually I've always managed through people. And I think if you're managing a crisis, the first thing you've got to think about is how you're actually communicating to people and uh, what you're actually getting them to do. And also the people that you surround yourself with. I mean, you choose who you want to be in the lifeboat with. And I discovered that very early on as an engineer. Um, so, you know, you naturally start to develop a very good sense of who will be supportive, who won't panic, who will get on with what they need to do. And you try and assemble the strongest team as fast as you possibly can. The second thing is that, you know, you, you go into something, it's a little like a tunnel in that you don't actually see the exit of that tunnel. Um, but you know that it's there. 
in the future. And you know that if you just continue forward, you, you're not going to hit a brick wall. There is an exit. Um, and I think if you have that in your mind, then you actually just move forward. And, um, and you, you have the confidence to do that. And it's really just trying to get as much done every single day until at some point you start looking back and you realize you're coming through. You know, you start to see the light. Um, that can take months sometimes. Um, and you just have to feel that you're okay in the dark for a while and that you can make decisions with, you know, 60% information, 40% information, um, and feel comfortable with that. I actually think being having statistical training made me like that, that I, I sort of thought you never have the whole picture. You know, just what, what are the, the variables telling you about what the likely outcome is here? and just go in that direction. When have there been moments that even from yourself that you have um, felt that, you know, diversity inclusion needs to be greater for women in the workplace, but at events as well? And I think there may be a couple examples that you have spoken to before, especially around Davos, maybe? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Um, so. Yes, in terms of my own life, I mean, I'm rather a small person. My husband is six foot five, and uh, and he often comes to conferences. He came to da he's been coming to Davos with me for the last few years, and quite often um, he's mistaken as the delegate, and clearly I'm the spouse because you know de delegates have spouses' tickets at Davos, um, and uh, even by pretty senior people. <laughs> Can you name any of those senior people? <laughs> well, I, you know, I had gone on, on record as, as saying that actually happened with Joe Biden. He, he shook Jim's hand and not my hand at, a, at an event. But, you know, it, it was a natural mistake. It could have been anything. I'm not, you know, I'm not overly precious about that. But it just goes to show that it's natural to think that the big guy who's actually a school teacher, and I got a kick out of it because I went like, does he know he's just, you know, he's shaking the school teachers? <laughs> Not that I've got anything against school teachers. I think they're fantastic and particularly male school teachers because you need good male role models um, to show children um, and develop children in the right way. I think would be really interesting from that that story is um, what advice would you give for um, you know women that need to make a stand even in a subtle way because those things may seem small mm -hmm. um, but if it's collectively especially over years and years and years and you're trying to rise up a ladder you know in an industry which is male dominated when and how do you you know not you know water yourself down right to you know, make other people feel uncomfortable, but also like be strong and put yourself out there to point out when something isn't uh, quite right. Or <laughs> I a think bit that's worse. a great question. And one of the things that I think about it is I, I go back to humor. Sometimes you point these out and actually if you do it in a humorous way, like, you know, isn't that funny that that happened? It actually people take the message better, it goes down better, rather than sort of doing it in a way that says like, well, how offensive, you know, guys should have known, blah, 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 you know, kind of thing. Um, uh, so I actually think that it's humor and appealing to people's senses that, that makes a difference. What would you say um, at the end of your career is your biggest legacy or your biggest legacy of your life that you've had? 
Well, um, you know, I, I feel that I've been really trying to change things for, for women in the corporate world from the time of writing that maternity leave letter. And uh, in later life, of course, as you become more powerful, you can influence and impact more women, both internal to your company and external. Um, and so it, from a company perspective, I've been trying to build a pipeline of women who can come up and rise through the company. And at the time when I took over, we only had a handful of females running countries in our company. Now over 30% of our country heads are female. And that's quite a shift. And by the way, it's not the easy countries. It's places like, um, you know, Venezuela, Ukraine, um, you know, Nigeria, um, and then, of course, France, um, Spain, um, you know, the Nordics was run, run by a woman, um, you know, Taiwan, um, Hong Kong, Singapore. Uh, it's all over the world. And that, I feel, shows that women from every part of the world can be truly successful in the corporate world. And, uh, and I'm going to continue that work now because actually um, I'm going to step up and co-chair the 30% club because now actually I'm a chairman of a, my own board and I want more women to be on boards, but more women to make it into the C-suite. And uh, I'm also stepping up to be chairman of the Global Banking Alliance for Women, which actually um, delivers products designed for women, to women around the world through a big network of banks. And, uh, and I think this is the way to change the world. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Global Change Agents with me, Liana Brinded, produced by Yahoo Finance UK. A full version of this interview can be found at yahoo.co.uk forward slash change agents. And for more information, go to uk.finance.yahoo.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.